right, Daniel. Uh, thanks for joining this afternoon. I am so excited about uh, having this conversation. Um, it's been a while since we've connected. So what's up? Well, yeah, it has been a, a while since we connected. I guess um, what's up? I've just been working really hard on the, the company. I've been making a, a push to identify a more specific uh, sub-segment of uh, private equity. And I think it's been time to move into uh, a more targeted private equity um, uh, healthcare approach for me and my firm. So one of the, you know, private equity is one of the industries that I've, I've tried to move into. And it was a goal of mine getting into to graduate school. And it's definitely a very, very challenging industry, you know, to play in. So uh, just been really trying to refine kind of how I'm going to engage my customers. Yeah. Fascinating. So, so tell me um, how you think of um, your part of private equity from an industry perspective. And my understanding as sort of an outsider looking in is that a lot's been changing. And so some of the old things that used to be taken for granted are sort of no longer the, 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 it's no longer the case that they'd be accepted. So I'd be curious if you were to think about two or three trends uh, that sort of a, as a layperson are are both important and relevant when we think about the private equity industry. Sure. Do you mind if I do like a second on history? Sure. Because I, I think it's important. So, you know, the history of private equity really began in the 80s. And what happened in the 80s is the tool of leverage began to be understood very well. And private equity companies were able to make money just simply off um, buying distressed companies, levering them up with debt, catching the tax benefits you know, from the debt, and then, um, then basically just taking a financially distressed company, um, taking it out of financial distress through financial engineering, and then basically reselling that company back onto the market. Over the last 20 uh, to 30 years, that has changed. Um, what's happening in the market now is that you cannot, as a private equity company, just look for a financially distressed firm, buy that and make money off of it. The market has moved beyond that. The reasons for that is because the competition within the private equity space has intensified. Um, I think, you know, like any industry, when there are outsized profits, it draws in competitors. And I think the most concerning trend in the industry right now, um, from where we've gone to the 80s to now, is a report just came out, um, I believe it was by Bain. And uh, within the Bain 2020 private equity report, um, they actually released that overall private equity returns are no better than market returns, which is a pretty difficult thing to hear about the industry. Because private equity's value and, and what it promised to do is take underperforming companies that were financially distressed, buy them and make them healthy again and get them back on the market. And so I think private equity now is in a state of shift trying to figure out exactly how to be competitive and return um, and basically give their investors returns higher than uh, the S&P. What you do see within private equity in terms of the returns, they're skewed very heavily towards the top players. So, you know, the top 25% of the players in private equity, they're still making a lot of money. 
So I think what you're going to see out of those players is the movement into small and mid-cap acquisitions. So they're going to buy smaller and more medium-sized businesses because the larger deals have already, like, that's been done. Um, like, for example, um, one major deal that did happen last year was that Sun Country uh, Airline was bought by Apollo Capital. But you won't see uh, Sun Country is an airline based in Minneapolis. Um, and so you saw a private equity company like Apollo buy an airline, which is really crazy to have one fund own an airline. And, um, but you're not going to see transactions like that. You're going to see transactions more in the small and mid cap. You're talking $100 million to $500 million range of annual revenue of the businesses. You're not looking at $1 to $2 billion. So the industry itself has gotten quite competitive. And where I fit into this is that, so since financial engineering is no longer a way that you can make money um, on a private equity fund, and it's not really a way that you can deliver value to shareholders and to all the stakeholders of a company, private equity companies have realized that they need to make operational changes to companies and create value. So that there's been a move over the last 10 years towards value creation. And what value creation basically means is instead of just buying a company, working on the finances and selling it, the value creation, um, these companies are realizing they need to make operational changes towards best practices. They need to begin working on you know, lean manufacturing in the case of a manufacturing uh, play. In the case of a services play, they really need to work on um, on customer service and customer experience and make sure they're hitting best practices around uh, around that. So it is the private equity companies getting much more in bet and enmeshed in governance uh, of a organization. And then also what they will do is provide expertise and support to the management team and as well as outside consultants. So that's where I come in where if there's a piece of a program after an acquisition has taken place uh, and they're trying to you know, deliver demonstrable value, um, that is where they begin to launch these initiatives and people like me can get hired in or are brought in in order to help them. So I know I just talked for a little bit there. I hope that's not too long. No, it's good. Um, would you say that you have um, a few people in this space that – you think are sort of at the cutting edge of um, thinking about this new paradigm and are really set up well to succeed? Well, I think one firm I really like is TPG Capital. And as compared to some of the other firms that I know, their approach is a little bit more unique. there is unfortunately a standard playbook in private equity that sometimes when you come in, there is a um, immediate tendency to want to draw down on labor and, um, and take some really drastic cuts. From what I've seen around TPG and the type of investments they make, and I've, you know, full disclosure, I've worked for them and really loved, um, loved them. The style is a, a little different. They, they take, you know, more interesting risks. Um, they buy like cosmetic brands. Uh, I think they own L'Oreal. Uh, they got their start. Um, and one of their early investments was in Ducati. So you know, making big plays like that with big brand names and using more unique personalities 
Um, the people I met there were, were, were very different. Um, so yeah, there is, uh, I think one firm that's doing these things, what their approach is, it's, it's kind of the thing that you, I have learned about private equity over the past couple of years in school is that it's a really difficult industry to break into. Uh, it's fairly insular. And so these kind of unique, um, you know, things that go on with inside these firms that differentiate them. It's fairly hard, at least as um, I still consider myself um, kind of in the middle range in the industry. I haven't fully broken into the market yet. It's kind of hard to see, but there are, are stylistic differences for sure. Like some firms are more hard-nosed, some, um, but they're all sharp. They're all very smart. So I, I don't know if that was the great answer to your question, but I, I tried. Huh. Um, as you think about your pivot into private equity, mm-hmm. um, what, what sort of led you there? What was the insight both about yourself, and I think primarily about yourself, uh, oh, maybe something has to do with the, in, the industry uh, that led you here? Yeah, wow. Um, well, this is, um, this is I'm going to tell a little bit of a story here because it involves how I even got into this. Um, and it kind of goes to one of your your the questions that we discussed earlier, and it I had uh, what I thought at the time was a really terrible thing happened to me. Um, I was you know laid off from Accenture. Uh, the revenue cycle practice had not performed, and that's specifically what I was hired in for. And um, I you know was very confused after that happened. And I took some time off. I took about a year off and I worked on a different project, on more of a personal project. And throughout the course of that year, as I reflected, I got in contact with an agency um, that was looking for independent consultants and I didn't know much about it. And so I signed up and um, I got started. And the very first um, pitch I did, and I didn't realize who I was talking to at the time, was to a comp- to was to Bain Capital, and I ended up selling them this project, um, but I couldn't take it because I could only work part time because of my other you know responsibilities, and and so that project didn't go forward at that time, which was a little heartbreaking, but um, it was the right decision, and it kind of showed me that there was this whole other world. Um, you know, fast forward six months, I. Again, apply for one of these projects. I'm done with my personal project, and I actually get it. And it's 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 TPG Capital. And and why I get this, and what I loved about it, what attracted me to it, is it relied on the skill set that I first built in healthcare. Um, I worked in hospitals and healthcare administration as a management consultant for the first six years of my life. And what we really did was we focused on governance. We focused on operational excellence and operational efficiency. We focused on accountability, accountability, transparency, uh, reporting, data and analytics, you know, measuring to improve. And it was this core set of management and consulting skills that when I was hired on with TPG, I realized I could use them in a non-healthcare context. So my skills were translated to actually an auto warranty producer or, or service provider. So I worked in basically insurance and I never even touched that industry. And so I saw for the first time 
the fact that within private equity, you can take on these longer term projects and they're really cool and you can do different types of things. I really loved when I got on that project, uh, working with the executives that were uh, both on the client side, as which is the, the private equity company, as well as the portfolio company side. And so there was this great vibe and this like great teaming aspect between the three or four of us. Um, we all had different perspectives. We all had different sort of needs and incentives, uh, but it just seemed to work. And I understood uh, just kind of naturally how to work with the, diff- with the, the diverging interests of portfolio leadership and private equity leadership. There, there was a real way for me to bring those two groups together and, and, and play um, and play a bridge there to make sure communication was flowing and stakeholders were being managed appropriately. And I, I loved it. Um, I loved what I did on that project. I had a huge role and I realized that there was, I could make a living at this if I could create a sustainable business model. And that's what I've been trying to do since I've been in in graduate school. And it's just, there's nothing like it. Like there's nothing like, starting a project completely on your own and then delivering that work. Um, I'm very proud every time I, I do it. And my challenge as a business person has been to appeal to private equity and figure out how to sell to them as an independent provider. Uh, and that I've understood is, is kind of a tall order. and It's very difficult. Um, and so, you know, this was taking some time, but if you can get there, the opportunities, if you get a reputation, if you get a small brand, a personal brand, um, it can be a very, very um, fun and, and stressful, but you know, lucrative and rewarding career. So you've learned a lot about the industry, sort of certainly navigated a lot, and you don't do that much without making a few mistakes. <laughs> and some of them, I suppose, are, are better than others. Um, but if you were to look back and think about a mistake that you made uh, that you would, in retrospect, call your favorite mistake, uh, what would that be and why? That's a great question. Um, gosh, I've made I've made so so many mistakes um, throughout the course of my my career, um, and you know I have learned from all of them. I can't honestly think of one huge mistake. I I think there's been like a lot of like little mistakes, especially around relationships. Um, And I think there is one relationship that I, I don't think I handled as well as I could. And uh, I think it had, um, you know, uh, a negative impact on me initially. Um, But when I look back at the experience, I think it made me a way better manager um, and a way better consultant. So I, I was on a project um, and it was at a healthcare uh, system in Iowa called Genesis Health System. And I was in a role where I, you know, I had a large team underneath me for a consulting team. It was about eight people and, um, and I was on point and I had a manager who um, was inexperienced in my area. She'd never managed my area and I'd been doing that area for five years. So I was the expert 
and yet she was responsible for the results. And my, you know, at that time I was young and um, I really wanted to be independent. I wanted to do it all. I, I wanted to show uh, my competence. That's not what she cared about. I realized later, um, you know, as our relationship got into trouble, what she needed me to do and how it's related to my, my current success is keep her updated consistently. All I needed to do was tell her what is going on um, instead of trying to manage the issues and solve them on my own. So I'd been taught that by a number of other managers, but this particular person um, needed something different. And I don't think I had the skills at that time to perceive that this was a different type of manager and I needed to adjust my style very quickly. And Unfortunately, that that relationship, you know, I struggled with her. Um, we were not able to communicate well until the very end of the project, in which you know we kind of came to realize that you know I was the leader that she needed me to be. But by that time, the relationship had so deteriorated, and and it just wasn't that like feel good relationship that takes you to the next level at the organization that you're in. So what I learned was that I really need to, even when I don't want to communicate about something, I have to communicate about it. I have to. And that's how I got good at managing stakeholders was because I'll say the difficult thing. I will say the hard thing that no one wants to say. I will create the conflict that no one, and this is just part of my personality, I'll make sure the conflict happen that needs to happen in order for the situation to get resolved successfully. And what I've gotten good at is navigating through those conflicts as well as preventing them from ever needing to, to, to happen in the first place. Um, because if you don't have the conversation up front, it gets so much worse on the back end. And to give you an example of what I mean by that and how like just frankly um, direct I can be and, and how effective uh, it is when I got on my first on this TPG project I told you about. I found out that one of the um, one of our folks that was in India, brand new client, didn't have what she needed, um, and I realized that this was critical that she get what she needed. So it was about eleven o'clock at night, and I called up the the global SVP of uh, infrastructure. Um, and I said, she needs these things. And he had not even met me. And at the end of this project, that's a very strange thing for anyone to do. That is not advisable. But what I, I had a sense of this project. And by the end of it, you know, Joe and I were, were very good friends um, and very supportive. So I've learned this process of how to take my clients through difficult change and be an agent of change, but at the same time, figure out how to smooth things out. So it's a good experience for everyone. And, and that's my goal with my, with my client engagements. And I learned that. I only learned that through making a mistake and seeing how bad it can get with someone. And it's unfortunate. But you know, years later, um, that manager and I, we've corresponded. We're good. And you, know, you live and you learn. Hmm. That's uh, it's remarkable how like in the long run some of these things, um, come full circle. Right, you know. 
So when you're going through something like that, what what do you think of um, as or or the principles that guide you to being able to push past the lack of communication, so the everyday anxiety, the the more elevated level of anxiety? Um, what what convinces you, or is it gives you the the confidence to be able to push past it? You know, that's a great question, and it's really one thing. It's one simple phrase. I'm here to help. That's it. Um, I have to look at my clients and realize that I am there for them, and my only purpose is to be helpful. And so that aligns me very, very, very easily with when I am there in a difficult conversation or I'm in a position where I don't know the direction that a meeting is going to go or a decision is going to go. Um, it lets me let go and say, I'm just here to help. I'm not here to be in control. I'm not here to try to overly influence the outcome. I'm here to help you, my client, um, succeed where you, where you want to go. So it really kind of, I try to take my ego out of it to a certain degree and I try to remove my bias and just see what needs to get, get done. And if you can do that and depersonalize these things and just, you know, see the business problem as the business problem and separate the people from the problem, it, it's really, really, really helpful. Um, so I think, you know, that's like a philosophy I have is just, I'm here to help. And, um, you know, to do that, I, I have to understand that I cannot have high ego. I have to be low ego and high impact. That's why I came to Kellogg. It's because I believe in that. And, you know, when I'm in that situation, you know, with my client, I, I have to bring value. Um, and but the value that I bring has to be helpful to them. It has to be something that they're comfortable with. So it's really like, no matter what the issue is, how can I be helpful? Hmm. And you'll, I find that when I approach everyday relationships that way, and I'm trying to see, I'm trying to see things from their point of view, and trying to think about what they need and how I can best serve them. That generally tends to work out pretty well in the level of anxiety. Because you feel pretty aligned and you know what's expected of you and you know what you need to do and all the confusion surrounding goals and all the confusion surrounding like what do you need to do in order to be successful in this you know, particular moment. Um, I've, I've found that you know, when you really practice standing next to someone and you know, as you stare at a computer screen and you're not sure what to do around these numbers and you, know, you take a breath and you're just like, I'm here to help you. That's it. I have no agenda to grind on this other than, you know, what our scope is and what we're trying to do. And I think leaders really appreciate that when they feel that from you, when they know that authentically you're just there to help. You're not trying to um, gouge them with your fees. You're not trying to sell them work um, as you're delivering work um, so aggressively that you lose sight of the actual delivery and they, they feel like it's a constant marketing thing. So for me, it's, it's that like, how can I help? Or I'm here to help, or I just want to be helpful. That's it. 
And when when your I guess this question, sort of taking a different angle, if you think about areas when you're unfocused or overwhelmed, how do you exercise self-care? Wow. I have had to really work on this. Um, what, you know, I have, I, my hours are long. Um, I own my own business and there's never really a day off. Um, so this has been very important to me and what I am more successful some days than others. And in fact, this is a period where I haven't been in as, as successful, but I have a routine actually where every morning um, I get up and usually about an hour and a half early um, and I do about 30 minutes of prayer, meditation and yoga maybe a little more than that actually. And, you know, with some coffee and I, um, then, you know, take a shower and I prepare for my day and I, um, I'm usually in pretty good shape because the night before I had written down all my next steps and the things I needed to address the following morning. So by doing that the night before and, and having everything organized, even the things I hadn't finished. And then, um, you take that time in the morning and, I, I get centered. Then once I'm centered, I go out to, into the day, and you know I'm usually in the office before everybody, and um, and that is like some quiet time for me to not send email to get prepared, and and it's really avoiding touching my email until I get to work that is the most helpful hmm. um, outside of that. So I try to practice good email habits on top of that, but it's really having this time in the morning that makes a huge difference for me. We talked about your the 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 things like uh, attitudes and um what what sort of holds you uh, or the principles that underpin you and sort of the, the how can I help. Um if you were to think about um things that you've read that have been really influential or uh something that you're reading right now that um, is is helping you think a little bit differently, challenge how you uh, how you work and live. Um, any cool reads? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's there's two books. Um, the first one is a book I read in college. And uh, it's called The Courage to Be. And this is a different book. This is not a business book. Um, this, this is a philosophical religious book. And what the book was about to me, first off, it's written by this German theologian called Paul Tillich. And this guy, you know, survived World War II and came over to the U.S. and was the... Um, um, he was at Union Theological Seminary at, um, at Harvard. And ended up writing all of these books in the post-war period um, that had to do with what the world was um, following World War II. How do you understand that? And particularly his question was, in the modern period, how do you find a sense of faith and spirituality within the world? Um, and when he 
what he did is he took classic philosophy, modern philosophy, and contemporary religious thought and ancient religious thought and put them in, into uh, conversation. So that's like taking Nietzsche and the Bible and reading them together and not seeing a conflict, which is really weird. Um, and he comes up with this exaltation to live life in the sense of that you're responsible for your choices, you're not determined by the universe, you in in some sense have to bear the anxiety that we all talk about so much because you're free. You have a, a responsibility to your life to make choices because by nature, um, no one else can do it for you. You know, you have to be willing to face the anxiety within the modern world. And, and, and his, at, to him, as a Protestant theologian, he was most worried about what was happening um, to the state of religion in the world at the time. When people were talking about religion going away. And he is very much trying to deal with atheistic point of views along with religious point of views and put them in conversation. So as like a questioning person, as someone that uh, is a searcher and a seeker, um, I found a lot of uh, comfort in that book in the sense that, okay, at some point, you know, there are no more answers. Like you're just going to have to deal with anxiety on some level as you go throughout your life and you're going to confront it on a number of different levels. Um, some anxiety will be serious um, and like on an existential level and some anxiety will be, I'm going to make it to this meeting on time. Um, I, I really connected with that deeper sense of okay, I had all these religious questions. I had all these questions about faith. Uh, and this book to me gave me a way to think about them and answer them in a way where I could move on with my life. So that that's one book that I, I, I loved. It's, it's fairly technical in terms of the language, but there's just some really beautiful parts of it. And it really is a book that makes you feel like it's worth living, like you, you know, have a connection to the world, and um, it's beautiful in that way. Uh, I could talk about another one um, that I'm reading now. It, it's, it's called um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And that book is about biases. Um, I, I have realized in our, in our time, when, you know, as we live, that bias has become a huge issue. And we realize that making decisions under conditions of uncertainty is incredibly difficult. And I worry about it. I worry about bias. You know, I worry about bias in the sense of what it does to hiring. I worry about bias in, in terms of what it does to, you know, intergroup dynamics at work, uh, what it does to basically economic decisions. Uh, and I'm only a, like in the first, you know, ch chapter or two of that book. But I'm already convinced that this book is going to change the way I see the world. So yeah, yeah, that that's quite a, a quite an influential book. Uh, certainly, very popular in, amongst the business reads. Cool. I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to maybe post Kellogg. 
yeah, I think I just haven't really had time to read much. When I saw the question, I was like, I'm going to talk about something we read in school. Um, it's, it's a time of a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of doom and gloom. Um, coronavirus is in full swing. But if you were to step back and think about what makes you most hopeful for the world in the next three to five years, what would you say that is? That that is a great question. Um, I am hopeful over the next three to five years. Um, what makes me hopeful? I'm not entirely sure. I do feel like we, as a society and as a business community, that there is a lot of you know forward progress around and a lot of work around making sure that workers well-being is being taken care of uh, i think we are trying you know very hard um, to create diversity within our workplaces um, and i think that that's incredibly important uh, because some of the larger social problems that we have uh, business has a role in solving them i mean Bringing diversity into the work into the workplace um, and allowing some of those conversations that are are taking place outside in the world to take place inside a business, uh, I think that that's very important and very hopeful. I, I think American business is going to be a source of um, integration for our society um, as economic opportunities are opened up to, you know, non, um, uh, to, you know, underrepresented groups. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I think also just business trends in, in general, uh, you know, the American economy since the financial crash, I, as I've watched it, um, there are a few sectors I'm worried about. I'm worried about corporate debt. I'm a little worried about, um, I'm a little worried about um, personal credit card debt, and I am a little worried about student debt. But what I have heard and seen is that millennials are a saving generation, like that that there is a group of people right below my generation who was burned by the financial crisis. And I think as these two groups sort of come up into the world, um, i'm I'm hoping those memories, um, lead to saner business practices that don't result in something like we saw in 2008 happening again for, for quite a while. I do feel like, you know, we've had an 11 year market run that just ended. Uh, I think, you know, from what I see with the coronavirus, I don't see a huge amount of structural damage yet. So it really depends upon the the strength of the success of the world i am hope uh, at responding to the virus i'm hopeful with what i've seen in china you know the latest numbers show you know less than 30 cases um less than 30 new cases in the last day and i'm hopeful that this is an opportunity for our country to have a really serious conversation um about our health care that is less politicized than it has been in recent years um, if there's one thing that I know um, 
that we can be better on and I'm hopeful about it is about our, our healthcare. I mean, some of the smartest, just most dedicated, committed people uh, in the economy work in healthcare. And, and right now, I mean, gosh, I mean, they're like firefighters. They're out there. They're going to be on the front lines. And I admire, I admire them um, quite a bit. And so I'm, I'm very hopeful about our, our, our healthcare leadership that we have out there. I, I know that people are working very intently on solving, uh, on solving this problem. And I don't have the political solution to the problem, um, but I do know that that business and technology are going to be working very hard to address these issues. You know, as we've seen with the Berkshire um, Hathaway, Amazon, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase um, partnership to create that large health insurance provider, we don't know what that's going to look like. I mean, it could look like a single payer system as it is, and it could put any government model to shame. Um, so I'm excited to see what happens with that. Um, and very hopeful around that. So yeah, you know, it's a challenging time right now. Um, and it's a nervous time, but I think once we get through this coronavirus, there will have been some, you know, reset within the market as well. Unfortunately, I do think that there is going to be some real loss, real economic loss, um, but I also know that some of the impurities, as people call them, um, will have been taken out of the market. And, you know, if we can address these healthcare concerns in this country, um, in the meanwhile, we could come roaring back from this. On that note, thank you for spending your afternoon chatting with me. Thank you so much, Akshay. It's been an absolute pleasure.